You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Legal podcasts always have caveats, so here is ours. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. While you're there, you can also read more information about the upcoming 28th Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law Conference. The conference will be November 1st and 2nd at the Hilton in Washington, D.C., and the time to sign up is now while early rates are still in effect. In this episode, we're going to continue our conversation with Steve Bunnell, a partner with O'Melveny and Myers, the, the former general counsel of the Department of Homeland Security. Last episode, he talked to us about blockchain and its role in the virtual currency market, as well as other potential applications. We're going to continue our discussion of blockchain, Bitcoin, and other virtual currencies today. And during this podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity or in the notes to the podcast. At the end of this episode, please drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. Yeah, let's go to the dark side. Let's get dark. Let's get dark. So now now we've decided that even though... Regardless of whether we need it, it, it's here and people are trying to use it. Right. So what should we be doing about it, especially the illicit part, right? You alluded to that in the beginning of the conversation that there's speculators, but there's also criminals using this because, um, well, first of all, why is, there, why is this an appealing um, route for a criminal to use and um, what can we do as far as regulating it? Yeah, and, and when I say there are criminals that are using it, um, I, that's different than saying that it is widely uh, adopted by criminals any more than it's widely adopted by everybody else. Sure. Um, I mean, I think back when Silk Road existed, it was uh, a way to, you know, for high school kids to buy marijuana online um, without their parents knowing. That's no longer quite as easy to do because Silk Road's not around anymore. But... Um, Bitcoin itself is less anonymous than people think, but a lot of people think it's anonymous and so or think that it's more anonymous than other ways of transferring money. So so I think there's been use of it based on that, and it's also sort of easy. Um, but but I do think that the 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 most popular far and away uh, you know sort of most attractive, way to transfer value if you're a criminal is cash. Always has been. Um, probably will be for a long time. Um, you know, blockchain technology is hard. Uh, the user interface is not very good. You know, a lot of these bad guys have no idea, uh, you know, how to use a public-private key pair and, you know, make sure they don't fat finger in the wrong public address and send their money to the wrong place. Um, same thing with terrorists. So, yes, there are a few examples uh, that have gotten attention in the media, but I think it, it today is, is a relatively small percentage of bad guys that are actually using this technology. That's not to say that might not change in the future, but I th- and, and something we should be concerned about in the future. But I, I don't think the sky is falling and the world is, you know, going, you know, all dark 
because uh, criminals are out there using Bitcoin today. Well, let me just say this. I just want to be provocateur here, if I could. Um, you know, the uh, Mueller investigation resulted in an indictment, uh, which was returned on July 13th of 2018, and it charged 18 members of uh, the Russian Federation's uh, military intelligence unit, known as the GRU, um, with, you know, engaging in interference in the election. But one of the things that I would note is in, in uh, I think it was count 10 of that indictment, which is a lengthy speaking indictment, it was pretty clear that Bitcoin had been the manner that they used to purchase the infrastructure um, that was used, such as the, you know, the, the GoDaddy websites or whatever, informa- whatever they used to put their website together and get their information out. Um, but I do think that that's interesting reading for anyone who's who's trying to get an education on what that dark side looks like. I also find it suspiciously reminiscent of the early days of PayPal when uh, this kind of thing was occurring then. And now I think PayPal is extremely widely used and legitimate. Um, but that is that might be interesting to our listeners. Um, do you want to respond can, to that? Can I just say something yeah, about sure. the Mueller indictment? Because I think that's actually... Um you know, kind of it highlights the the sort of dual, the two sides of the coin, so to speak. Um, the reason that um, Bob Mueller was able to figure out exactly how those payments were made is because they were made with Bitcoin. If they'd been made with cash, um, right. we'd be back in the world of Watergate when people broke into the DNC and did bad stuff, but there wasn't any trail to, to set forth in a in a speaking indictment. So Bitcoin um, is a friend of law enforcement when you're trying to reconstruct where the money went in a way that, and it's, it's much easier. You can do it instantaneously. You don't have to wait for, you know, the MLAT request from the Swiss bank, which might never get responded to. Um, you just go online and you can find it very quickly. So it, it, it may facilitate certain transactions, but it also facilitates auditing and tra- and uh, tracing of the transactions later, so it's a double-edged technology in that respect. Right, and that and a lot of that tracing, just for our listeners' benefit, can be um, looked at. If you go on the website that is uh, Chainalysis, um, you can take a look at some of those public sort of tracing mechanisms, and there are other public source things that would allow you to trace. But um, you talked about the reconciliation period, and it sounds like it's awfully short. I, I've heard in some instances seconds. When I talk about the reconciliation period for our listeners, when you have an ACH transfer from a bank, it's a three-day waiting period. And the idea being, I guess in theory, that um, you know the, the banks can look at their entire data holdings and all their transactions, and they can run what's called a mini-to-one algorithm to detect um, anomalous transactions and thereby surface things that are illicit. Um, and I think one of the concerns is, look, this is instantaneous. Um, I mean, how do you respond to that? The, the concern being, and, and you know, can these people know their customers? Can they comply with the Bank Secrecy Act? Can they have an anti-money laundering program in reality? Well, yeah, yeah, sure. You can, you can have an AML program without. Look, I think it's pretty unusual to actually block transactions in real time. I'm not, not somebody who's necessarily a deep expert in the space, but my understanding is that most AML programs involve filing, you know, monitoring and filing suspicious activity reports after the fact, which provide leads for law enforcement. But it's not like there's a whole lot of of 
transactions that are stopped and crime that is prevented because of AML. It's more that it, it provides some window into what's going on. I also think um, that, I mean, we need, to be, we need to be honest about how much money laundering is actually picked up by the AML and counterterrorist financing regimes that we have. It is a very small percentage of the actual amount of money laundering that's going on. So a very small percentage. Very small. Point. Very small. Yeah, right. it's, it's and I, I don't know the exact number. I've heard it's well south of one percent. So what we're talking about here is, yes, you you may be putting a hole uh, in in the system, but it's not. A, it was never an airtight system to begin with. You're putting a ha- you're putting a hole in a colander. You're not putting a hole in a balloon. So uh, well, that's an image. that's a great analogy. So um, yeah, I mean, I'm, look, I'm I'm not. I'm not against any money laundering programs. I think they're an important way to make it harder to be a bad guy and make it easier to find bad guys later. And those are worthy things. But that's a that's different than saying that uh, you know it's the only thing that we care about. It, it's one thing that has to be thrown into the mix of all the other things, the values and costs that this technology or or you know other technologies or other. I mean, we don't ban cell phones because bank robbers can use cell phones to coordinate their activities during the bank robbery. Um, there, there are enough social benefits to, be, and we don't ban roads and cars because the, it allows the bank robbers to get away. Yeah, and, and I don't think the I don't think the solution to the challenge of money laundering is to delay international payments by three days. Uh, across the board, I don't, that that can't be the right answer. That's not the right balance. There's got to be a better way to deal with it. Can I say one more thing on yes. the on yeah. the dark side? Um, I mean, this is a global technology. So even if we were inclined to really clamp down on it, as as the United States, it's going to continue to exist out there, and it is a peer to peer technology. So it will exist outside the reach of all governments. Um, and so I think, you know, as a country, we have to sort of make a decision. You know, do we want to try to harness, I mean, if you look at it from a law enforcement or national security perspective, do we want to try to harness the benefits of this technology and sort of channel it and regulate it in a way that strikes the right balance? Or are we going to try to, like, shut it down, I think, futilely, and then sort of lose that and sort of seed both the technology and, and frankly, the ability to control the harms to other countries or to no one at all. Uh, and I think that's the hard question. Uh, I don't know quite how to do it, but but we need to tread carefully. Yeah, I'm going to go with a non-dystopic conclusion of that image. <laughs> um, <laughs> to pull back a little bit from national security concerns to just plain criminal concerns, one thing that has cropped up is fraud in ICOs or initial coin offerings that have been likened to uh, blockchain-based Ponzi schemes, and that erodes the network of trust that it relies on. Do you think that there's any way that maybe we could combat those elements of criminal usage with the blockchain? Well, I, I don't think fraud and Ponzi schemes started with crypto. In fact, Ponzi was around a long time ago. Um, <laughs> and I can't remember when he was. He's some guy in New Jersey who thought up his scheme back probably uh, before there were computers. Uh, so, I think as a regulatory matter, where you're trying to prevent fraud, um, I, I, we have we have categories and and sort of legal buckets that were developed in a pre-digital world, 
that don't really fit very well with the the blockchain technology, which which sort of morphs over time. In other words, a, a token can start off you know maybe being used as a as a way to raise money for a startup company but then later on in its sort of evolution it can be essentially an arcade token that allows you as a user to participate in the game or the you know access whatever the service is and at that point it's not being used as a way to raise money it's basically it's a ticket to get into something or it could be essentially a piece of software that you can buy so you can then you know store your data in a decentralized cloud environment or something. So we need to we need to think about how the technology is being used in order to figure out what is the social harm that we're trying to regulate for and not get too hung up on the formalistic question is it a security is it a commodity is it property is it currency. I, those are sort of almost academic questions. The, the, you got to look at the underlying thing that as a matter of public policy you should care about. Uh, and that's what sort of frustrates me. Um, it's it's kind of like we're, we're trying to apply uh, Newtonian physics to quantum mechanics and we're getting kind of confused because, you know, quantum mechanics is sort of a world in which things sort of aren't in any one place at any one time. And, and Newtonian physics doesn't really give you a way to understand that. And it sort of feels that way when I watch regulators trying to figure out like which regulatory regime should I put this technology in and the answer is it doesn't fit in any one it moves around and you've got to regulate the effects that you care about whether they're investment protect investor protection consumer protection uh, illicit use market volatility you know systematic risks those are all legitimate things for a government to be concerned about um, but I think we need to rethink how we address them in the context of blockchain. But I think to your point, that so the um, Commodities Futures Trading Commission has decided that uh, a Bitcoin or a coin can, for example, be a commodity. Um, I think FinCEN has determined that a, blo a, a virtual currency exchanger is a money service uh, business. I think the SEC has said these ICOs are subject to their jurisdiction. Um, IRS has indicated that profits made from them are income earned um, and taxable as such. And this is just going to go on and on and on to your point. Um, so it's like a lot of different, uh, like other things that depending upon how you use them, um, they're going to fall within a different regulatory bucket. But there, this begs a question about um, whether or not there really is a need for a whole of government approach, some sort of response to this. I would note today that we're recording, it is October 1st, and my review of, of GovTrack on Friday uh, revealed that there were, I believe, four bills um, that had been, uh, I haven't even had a chance, some of the text isn't even available at the point that we're recording this, but um, all of this legislation appeared to try to regulate or deregulate it or prevent regulation um, in one form or another. What, what are your thoughts about that, a whole government approach? Could that work? I was recently at a at a dinner where I heard uh, Bob Gates describe Bob Gates, the former Secretary of Defense, describe the uh, the federal government as a giant dinosaur with a tiny brain and no fine motor skills and a big tail that swings <laughs> around wildly and knocks things down. And um, and 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 his, which I thought was a wow. was a was a 
interesting image. Um, but I think the one of the points he was trying to make is be careful what you ask for. The federal government has trouble with, you know, sort of uh, nuanced solutions to evolving technologies. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure a whole of – I think a whole of government uh, kind of uh, way of thinking about um, the technology is, is definitely in order. In terms of how I would – I'm not sure I would favor a single agency having control over it. Um, I think like a lot of things, you're going to need different, you know, stakeholders, different expertise to kind of coordinate. I, I do think there's uh, there's room for more consistency at the national level. Um, I mean, one of the frustrating things for for businesses, players, stakeholders in this space is that you've got you've got a, a whole array of, of state and in some cases local uh, regulatory regimes. Uh, in addition to all the federal stovepiping, and it just becomes a morass. I mean, the idea that you have 53 different state and territorial uh, regulators um, looking at money transmitter issues and theoretically each doing examinations of, you know, an, an exchange. I mean, how many exams do you really need to protect consumers? And And this is technology that knows no borders, so it doesn't really make sense to me to have inconsistent, duplicative regulatory regimes at the state level. I mean, th- these regimes were developed back, you know, in the horse and buggy era. So uh, I think there's probably room for some, I guess, pre- federal preemption of some of the, mm-hmm. I'm not going to make fans with the state regulators by saying that, but I think from the perspective of folks that, my clients that, that are trying to, navigate the, the regulatory landscape, um, they would love to have more simplicity, a single standard. And what exactly that looks like, I'm not sure, because there's always this tension between rules and standards. And if you, you ask for rules, you get clarity, but then the rules don't aren't flexible. And as the technology changes, the rules no longer make sense. If you have a standard, it may be flexible, but it doesn't provide as much predictability and certainty. So like like so many things, you know, there's going to be a balance, and it's going to be an iterative thing, and it will be a full employment area for lawyers for years to come as we sort this out. Well, do you have <laughs> so it seems like you got some opinions. Do you have any recommendations about what would be an ideal way to, you know, not uh, suppress the development of the technology or inhibit innovation and let it develop in all of these different directions, but at the same time protect against, you know, the things that we're concerned about, money laundering, you know, illicit transactions, like what would, what would Steve Bunnell, King for a Day, do? And, and something that wouldn't undermine the strength of the dollar and thereby diminish the efficacy of sanctions, I think, is, is one of the concerns that sort of I've heard various people on the Hill say and elsewhere. Yeah, and the sanctions regime is also like a colander, right? Um, the Iranians are already trying to figure out alternative ways to transact. Uh, they don't, they don't need their own virtual currency. As well, a, a yeah, but they don't even, uh, yeah, well, I'm not sure how well that's going to work for them. And right. It's not working very well for Venezuela. <laughs> no. But, um, but yeah, no, I think, I think that's a real concern. Um, I, I don't really have a, a quick answer to that other than that I think you have to look at that concern, weigh that concern against the benefits that it is an affirmative tool um, to promote foreign policy and national security goals in terms of transparency and you know being able to target aid and um, 
you know, sort of promote stronger democracies. So, I mean, there's there's kind of trade-offs. Um, in terms of a, I, I, if I were king for a day, I, I, I wouldn't want to be king for a day. Um, <laughs> I think that's a bad idea. You're dodging um, the hypothetical. <laughs> my, my concern, I guess, would be, I, I guess my my recommendations are more sort of process based. I, I think, I think it is important to pull together, you know, kind of a whole of government conversation. I think that's going on. Um, I'm not sure whether everybody who needs to be part of that is part of it, but I think it is starting. There's a huge gap uh, between uh, the technology and the level of understanding across the government and, and within Congress. And I think anything that can be done to close that gap is really important and will lead ultimately to some better, smarter regulation. And, I, and then as a, as a substantive matter, I think it, I think it is, it, it's critical to look at, take a functional view at how the particular coin or token is being used, not, not try to define it as something and then putting it in a bucket, because I think that, that misses the key things that are going on. So look at what it's doing, and if it's doing something bad, try to focus regulation on the bad thing, the bad function, without, you know, curtailing the good things that it could use, to put it in simple terms. But that, that kind of functional approach is sometimes hard to craft. But that's that's what I think we're going to need. That, and it has to be it has to be global. It, it is, we're going to have to reach out through FATF uh, for the AML stuff. I think AML is almost easier than some of the other things. The consumer protection issues are harder. But, uh, You're talking about the Financial Action Task Force, right? Correct, yeah, which is, okay. a, which is a, I guess, a G20 group that sets standards and regulates, uh, you know, proposes sort of regulatory actions that countries can, can follow. Uh, and I think has, has proven itself to be fairly effective in the AML space. Well, Steve, master of the analogy and blockchain, <laughs> it's been a pleasure to have you here tonight. And we're looking forward to hearing more about blockchain from you in the future. Uh, can you tell us uh, if you recommend any articles or reference materials that you want our listeners to check out? Um, I wish I could say I've written some brilliant article or book on this <laughs> subject. Um, I think podcasts are a great way to learn about this space. Uh, there are a number of good ones out there, uh, including this one. Um, I know Elisa and I were recently in a class taught by Chain House, which I thought was a really good introduction to the technology. I agree. A boot camp uh, for the non-technical person who wants to get a little more technically deep. Um, so I, I, I think... There's Coindesk. I think Coindesk. Coin, yeah. Uh, Coindesk and... Um, uh, Coin Center is a is a organization that has a website with a lot of really good resources on some of the legal issues. Um, if you want to dig deeper, and then I'm I'm kind of a fan of the Michael Casey Paul Vigna book, which is called I think Truth Machine, um, which is uh, an overview of like all the cool use cases that oh. blockchain offers. Um, and they're both um, I guess Vigna is still a Wall Street Journal reporter. Casey used to be one, is now at MIT. So they actually speak English for the non-geek set. Uh, they're, they're able to, to, but they understand the technology well enough that I think they capture it pretty well. So anyway, those Rather are my thoughts. Rather self-effacing of you, and, and uh, uh, as is your nature, but we're really glad you came in tonight. We hope you'll join us again in the future. 
And we hope we'll see all of you listeners on November 1st to 2nd, the annual review of national security law in D.C. And we will put a link to the registration form for the conference in the notes to this podcast. All right, again, just a reminder, the conference is November 1st and 2nd here in Washington, D.C. The reduced rate is still in place, so take advantage, and we hope to meet all of our listeners there. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security podcast. Tune in again for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff and have to pop vitamin D during the day, or you're just smart enough to know that national security law gives you a front row seat to history, and you don't want to sit on the sidelines or watch life from a distance, then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And remember, folks, listening to a podcast is informative, and keep listening. But social networking isn't really networking. You have to show up. So do that. Come to our annual conference in Washington, D.C., November 1st and 2nd. Join us at one of our breakfasts, lunches, or other conferences. And also check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or join our Facebook page. From all of us here, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time at the conference. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.